This is A Voice, podcast with Dr Gillian Kayes and Jeremy Fisher. This is A Voice. Hello and welcome to Series 5, Episode 3 of This is A Voice. The podcast where we get vocal about voice. And we have a very special episode for you today. Yes, we have our first guest of 2022 and it is specialist speech and language therapist Tor Spence of VoiceFit. And Tor loves coughing. I now, do. <laughs> is it that you love coughing? Hello, Tor. Hello. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This is really, really exciting to talk, yes, about a lot about coughing, which I've found myself working with a lot. And yeah, I just find it fascinating. And it's so linked, closely linked with the larynx and voice as well. And not all coughing is the same. Am I right? You are absolutely right. Yeah. So there's many different causes of cough. And the coughing that I end up working with is patients that have been coughing for more than eight weeks normally. So a chronic cough, a cough that's been refractory to various medical treatments, which means they haven't been successful at helping reduce the cough. And normally where all sort of lung function tests, respiratory ENT investigations, all of those are normal. Okay. So it's like coughing for no reason. It is. Well, in a way, so I tend to think of it as a help, the dividing cost between what's helpful and what's unhelpful. So if we think about a helpful cough being a cough that expels something from the airway that shouldn't be there, sometimes that's with a lung condition or disease where people need to get rid of mucus. Obviously, with an infection, you will be coughing partly to get rid of mucus and sputum as well. And it protects the, the airway, of course, from anything going down the wrong way, like food or drink and things when we swallow. But an unhelpful cough essentially is a dry, tickly cough that's laryngeal focused, that's caused um, or triggered by a sensation, where ideally we want to find something else to do to help manage or cope with that sensation rather than coughing. Otherwise, people get tend to get onto a cough cycle that causes more irritation, more coughing. And that's when people come to see me. I just, oh, sorry, I just ooh. had an image of people climbing onto a cough cycle. I'm going to chip in here because we're very fortunate we haven't had COVID. And no. I know you've worked with post-COVID patients. Mm -hmm. But I can remember swine flu. Do you remember swine flu? And I had it. And you coughed every 12 minutes. That was one of the markers. But once it had gone, eight weeks on, I was still blooming well, coughing. And it was exactly as you say, that little dry cough. I also was throat clearing. Mm -hmm. And actually, I went to see a laryngeal osteopath and he said to me, do you know that you throat clear every five minutes? And he did some work on my larynx and then the coughing went away. So I can relate to what you're saying is that suddenly we get this. It's almost a habitual pattern that we fall into. It's, is it like we're kind of there's an irritant, a sense of irritant in the larynx and it's responding to anything that comes by? Yes. So it's quite common after an infection or a virus, particularly something like swine flu or we're seeing post-COVID, that people have been coughing helpfully when they've been unwell. But what they're left with after any infection or illness is cleared is that the larynx has become quite hypersensitive. So it's very the larynx is obviously very sensory and it responds to lots of things but including environmental triggers and the air quality in the world around us and if the larynx is hypersensitive think of it as there are too many messages firing up from the larynx to the brain telling us that there's something there that's 
irritating or that needs to be got rid of. And people end up getting too many messages and a strong urge to cough. And of course, people will cough because they don't know at that stage that there's any, that they might get onto this cycle or there's something different they can do that's safer. Yeah. Talk about the effect on the larynx of coughing. Um, obviously, it's something that singers are very conscious of mm. uh, because we're told that it you know brings the vocal folds together very fast and, and therefore there's the potential to cause trauma. But from your perspective and in your experience, what is the impact on the larynx? So when you cough, you bring your cords together and then you explode them open quite forcefully. So yeah, there is the can there is often an impact on the surface layers of the vocal cord and the surrounding area. Quite often in chronic cough patients, if I uh, examine their larynx, we'll see that the false cords of ventricular bands are become quite involved and quite bulky as well. And that creates a tension and can lead to voice problems. So in a larynx where someone's been coughing, you will often see redness, inflammation, sometimes a bit of swelling. Now, it's quite difficult to prove that's down to the coughing and not something else because there's so many possible abilities and causes for that. You know, but some larynxes that where someone's been coughing will look entirely healthy. There's no set pattern and there's actually no set way of us visually assessing a larynx as well we're looking at a larynx when on with our own experience and what we know of the things that can affect it well you're looking Understood. at the larynx on camera but you're also questioning the whole person mm. and the whole mm. situation that they're in and what patterns that they've got right then mm. yeah mm. yeah absolutely so what do you do how do you help people in that situation what do you do at all so I work with people who have been coughing from eight weeks up to 30 years, and it's never too late to look at changing that response, particularly if this is someone who's had all the lung function tests, seen respiratory, seen ENT, absolutely nothing to worry about from a medical point of view, but they've got this incredibly frustrating cough, which often has a very significant impact on quality of life and affects, like you said, Jeremy, the whole person. There's so much to consider when it comes to these symptoms and it might be affecting their voice. It might be affecting their swallow. They've got these constant irritable feelings that may be made worse every time they talk. So I think of my treatment on a seesaw. So the patients I see on one side, they'll have heightened laryngeal sensitivity on this side of the seesaw. And on the other side, they've got an impaired conscious cough control because the more we cough, the more we want to cough. And that, that sort of mechanism of control becomes impaired. So you've got this very off-balance seesaw. Therapeutically, by trying to reduce the sensitivity on one side and then improve their conscious understanding and control of what they can do instead, how differently they can respond to that urge. By balancing the seesaw, you do start to see some improvements to the severity of the cough and then hopefully the frequency of the cough and the urge people get to cough. Mm. Um, it must affect their quality of life and mm. also mm. social interaction. I know sometimes if I've been on a, a train or something and somebody is coughing you know, apparently for no reason. And it can be quite loud, that kind of cough. Mm. And they cough and then a few minutes later they cough again and then they cough again. As a, someone hearing that, it can impact on you as well. And, you know, that's not because I'm not a mean, I'm not a mean person, but it must impact on them. Mm. And can you imagine over the last couple of years as well with the added 
um, component of COVID as well and how to be honest all of us do view cough or have done a little bit differently and when you hear someone cough people's uh, sensitivity that have been really heightened haven't they and what people are thinking about it yeah the patients I work with who cough frequently obviously you know home life's disrupted work life's disrupted and now particularly kind of social interactions are disrupted and they worry when they go out in public it can be quite lonely is there anything specific that we can do to because you know the the cough is triggered. Is there anything that you can do to stop that trigger or replace it with something? So I tend to focus people on the smaller coughs where there's more warning that the cough is coming first, because with chronic cough, not everyone gets a lot of warning the cough is coming. So there are some more explosive coughs that feel involuntary. But if we really tap into what is that feeling you get just before you cough? Because if there's a feeling, before, generally speaking, there is some voluntary control that we can get in there between the feeling that we get and the response, which is the cough. Mm. So I spend a lot of time with people focusing on that and keeping diaries and even sitting with me for half an hour, just if they're a frequent cougher, just feeling what they're feeling, tapping into that, being mindful, thinking about the sensations. And then we try and and come up with strategies and techniques for what to do instead. That's not a cough. That's just a different response because that starts to break the cycle. So you might start with just a gentler cough Mm -hmm. and then you might introduce techniques like, for example, a sip of water and a swallow. Sounds really simple, but by swallowing, you're sort of blocking that cough and you're closing the vocal cords, which can give people some relief from the sensation without that force. Mm. I love that. You used the word mindful, and I'd actually already written down mindful coughing. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And you're raising awareness in a particular area, which is that moment between feeling that you need to and actually coughing. And the firing. And it also helps Mm. put that person in control because Mm. otherwise you've got the sense that the cough is in control of you. Mm. Yeah. Oh, I talk so much about that with people. Yeah. Yeah. So what would be a gentle cough? I mean... So just pulling right back on the force, maybe turning it into a throat clear. So I might try a huffy cough. <laughs> Hopefully the sound picks that up or a <clears throat> just a very gentle throat clear. Because, yes, we don't want people to throat clear regularly and replace coughing with throat clearing. But it is less forceful than a cough. And we're just trying to work down those steps to, and finding less forceful responses and different responses. It's really interesting, interesting listening to you doing your gentle cough because you are basically doing a gentle glottal stop. Mm-hmm. And then there's slightly, it's a slower speed of air and there's slightly more air. So it's slightly less voiced. Mm-hmm. And that makes it both softer and more diffused. It's something that because singers often talk about, I've got guck, I've got guck on my vocal folds. Mm. And Jeremy, you have a technique, don't you, where you just say... <laughs> And notice I'm doing it with nasal breathing. And I know we're going to talk about that later, but there must be something where, forgive me if I'm preempting where you want to go, but you're triggered by the cough. Of course, then you take a breath in so you can do that forceful closing and opening. Whereas if we do it with nasal breathing, I think that might make a difference. And I know we hope to go there later. 
But, oh, I'm really geeking out here. That's so interesting. And you're yeah. breaking, breaking down mm. all the c- components of the coffin, the sequence that you go through. Mm. Mm. So if you imagine when you've got a sensation of a tickle, what normally people will do is take a big breath in through the mouth and then lock the vocal cords and then explode them open. So it's, yeah, it's breaking down that, that cycle, that process. And just people, of course, people aren't going to realise what, they're doing it feels like a natural response to getting rid of something in the airway when and there isn't a person on the planet who hasn't coughed at some point in response to an irritant of some kind or a feeling in the throat but these people with cough hypersensitivity are people where that threshold of response has really lowered so I walk into a room where someone's just sprayed deodorant and yes I might smell it off I'll perhaps feel it in my throat a bit but it's not a bother so these people with cough hypersensitivity one tiny spray of, of perfume or an aerosol or cleaning product and it sets them off immediately the used to do it for me mm. didn't they mm. it's, okay. it's, that's really interesting it sounds like when you're talking about the vocal fold behavior that it's the explosion open that is more problematic than because I got in my mind I'd got uh, we're bringing the vocal folds together the, the speed of closure is quite high which we know can cause shearing of the the outer layers but mm. it's the exp- the force is greater outwards is that yeah interesting, ah, interesting. Yeah. Mm. yeah people's coughs will vary hugely and it's very interesting when you've got a clinic full of chronic cough patients and so on a Monday morning I see lots of cough patients coming through from the respiratory team they've done had all their tests done and that the medics feel that no this is a chronic refractory cough this is something that can therapeutically be worked at and the differences in cough there's lots of similarities but there's also lots of different types of coughing and people get into patterns of coughing as well so I don't know whether you've ever noticed particular people will cough in, a, in very much a habitual pattern there might be two or three or four coughs in the same pattern each time so that's quite interesting tass of tapping into individual people's patterns and, and why that is and how we can break the patterns. But yes, it's the forceful nature of the explosion open when you cough that causes the most problems. Right. That is so interesting. You mentioned the word huffing. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I happen to know what huffing is. What are the benefits of huffing maybe in this situation? Well, first or? of all, we should say what is huffing. Yes, true. Yeah, I mean, so huff, a huff cough is letting the air out without too much cloak without full closure of the vocal cords essentially so you're not getting the forceful adduction and explosion open of the vocal cords so you're protecting the layers of of tissue on the vocal cords and the surrounding area the air movement through the glottis can then help expel a little bit of sticky mucus that might be there so in my experience people do often say to me there's something there that needs clearing However, if you were to look and examine the larynxes of all those people at that given moment, yes, some would have a little bit of uh, stringing mucus perhaps across the glottis when they're breathing or a little bit of of sticky patches of mucus, but not by no means would everyone have anything visual to actually look at. Mm -hmm. So sometimes that feeling of there being something there can be a sensation, uh, perhaps of dryness or of a bit of muscular tension that's caused that feeling of globus, for example. And a huff, the breath moving through the larynx can sometimes be enough just to give a person that feeling of relief. 
I'm glad you talked about mm. this because we've been talking quite a lot about uh, mucus and the dispelling of the mucus, but actually it isn't always mucus, is it? You can no. have really dry vocal folds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, people sometimes are absolutely convinced there's something there or there must be mucus to clear. And when a chronic refractory cough is dry in nature because there's nothing to clear, it's unproductive. But some people will say to me, but it is productive. I can feel something moving or loosening. If any of us cough enough, we're going to produce a little bit of mucus because of the forceful nature of it. Again, there is mucus in the linings of the airways below and a strong cough is going to displace that. So yes, what comes first really? There's, with chronic dry cough, there is rarely anything significant to clear. But if we cough enough, we will produce a bit of mucus. <laughs> Yeah, because there aren't there mucus glands in the ventricular folds. And mm. Obviously, if the, the system detects that the vocal folds are getting very dry, what are they going to do? They're going to create mucus. So I imagine you get this sort of cycle going on. Very interesting. Yeah, I'm I, really curious, um, just thinking about mm. the physiology, uh, and we talk about sipping water, but the water actually doesn't get down to the vocal folds. It's the action of the vocal folds closing fairly gently in a swallow that is mm. going to do something. Am I right? Yes. So if we think about the upper airway as a whole and the fact that, yes, the cough is happening in the larynx and a lot of people will feel that trigger in the larynx. But actually, the pharynx above can also be dry and, and irritable and cause an urge to cough or clear something from it. So the water, in a sense, that washes down the back of the pharynx before it goes down behind the larynx into the esophagus. And equally, the back of the mouth, the palate, if that's all dry, that can contribute to an urge to cough. So sipping water will help in that sense. But yes, it's, it's the swallow part of that process where the cords close and it gives you something different to do often a swallow when we use a swallow for cough control often it's about distraction Mm. it's about choosing to do something different for the purpose of moving away from a typical response which often is a cough Mm. it sort of sounds like because i know this can happen with pain can't it that maybe you break a a bone or something and obviously you get pain and you can get pain for quite a long time and i remember being told by my physiotherapist when i broke my wrist she said you must take the painkillers because i'm all right i can manage without no she said take them now because otherwise what can happen is a pain response will be set up and your body will continue that pain response after it's in fact no longer needed and i i was shocked Actually, in, in, in a way, you're saying that this is what happens with coughing. Yes, in a way, yeah, coughing becomes chronic because of that, that, that idea of that cycle. So if you cough, you cause, potentially cause irritation or the muscles to tighten up, there to be tension there, and that brings about more urge and feeling to cough. So it's about breaking that cycle. And like I said, over many years, that cycle might have developed. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's harder after 30 years versus one year to work to break that, in fact. Oh, that's wonderful. Mm. That's fantastic. So I think we should talk about your other love, which is probably your first love as a speech and language therapist, which is voice. Mm -hmm. So as a speech and language therapist, what does voice mean to you? Being a specialist in voice, Mm. what is it? 
So I quite quickly, when I graduated, I went into a very generalist adult role, but thankfully that did include some voice work in an acute hospital. I worked in a voice clinic and got to see patients who have experienced change or problems with the voice plus other throat symptoms as well. Of course, we can't really isolate a voice change without thinking about the upper airway and other symptoms um, at the same time. But I have always loved the medical side of voice, but also the fact that you can weave that in with the art and performance voice and all the amazing things that go along with that and the how fascinating the larynx is that it helps us with these hugely important life-altering functions like communication, swallow, breathing. It's also interlinked. So I've always been fascinated by the larynx. And as a voice therapist, I'll see people with a huge range of different voice problems or voice disorders, problems linked directly with the larynx, but also sometimes problems linked with breathing patterns, for example, or problems in the nose or elsewhere in the upper airway. But yeah, so there's a huge range of voice disorders from structural disorders to inflammatory disorders and neuromuscular disorders. But there is a big group of patients who have muscular tension imbalance in the larynx, which can cause voice change and all those uh, four areas of the conditions all interlinked as well. So Yes. Because, I mean, we love diagnosis when we're dealing with performing issues. Mm-hmm. And it's a real, this is the sort of skill set that speech and language therapists have, which is mm. that ability to take in all of that information and diagnose. And there's a lot of information that you need to take in order to be able to do a reasonable diagnosis. It's like a clustering, isn't it? You can't just be looking at one thing. You've talked all the way through about the importance of looking at the whole lifestyle, the pattern of how that person runs their life, you know, including how many hours they work, etc., etc. It's very holistic in that sense. Mm. Yeah, so I mean, a speech or voice therapy case history will take at least an hour of time in that in an initial session to talk to people about everything from obviously the the presenting condition and symptoms and the patterns of that, how it started, how it's developed, but then medical history, medications, social history, lifestyle, work, voice use, vocal demands, the patterns with which people use their voices, stress and psychological history and then obviously all the observation that goes into it as well so you know you really have to get to know people and I do that's what I love about it you never know who's walking through the door and what their symptoms are going to be before they do and yeah of course the amount that can go into a voice disorder the amount of different factors and influencing factors precipitating factors is enormous really When you're listening to a voice, and I'm just going to throw this at you, and if you don't want to go there, say, because sometimes in in our side of the profession, people will go for a lesson or they'll go to a masterclass and they'll work with someone who says, you've got a voice problem. And we always say, actually, you can't tell without looking. But let's assume someone's come to you who's maybe had some kind of a a diagnosis or is coming to you specifically as an SLT. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, what do you listen out for when you're listening to a voice? So it will, 
there's lots of influencing factors. We're biased by quite a few things when it comes to listening to a voice and what we might expect is actually the problem. So it depends where you're, where at what stage you'll see the patient, or that, that does for me. So, for example, I may, in the context of a speech therapy appointment, they will have gone through ENT, and I'll know the diagnosis. So I'll sort when I listen to a voice, I'll be listening and watching what they're doing and listening for various different parameters of abnormality within that voice. And in, the, in my head, I'm thinking, if that's the diagnosis, then what I'd expect, for example, with vocal cord paralysis, where one vocal cord isn't moving or isn't working properly because the vocal cords won't adduct or close fully, you'd expect a voice that's quite breathy, quite weak. It wouldn't necessarily be rough, but there might be a bit of roughness. And if that's not, if I'm not hearing what I'm expecting, then I'm questioning what's going on here. Not everyone is the same, but you're with experience, you'll get to know what you expect to hear based on the diagnosis. But more recently, I've worked in a speech therapy led two week wait clinic where I've been the first contact for a patient coming from a GP with a voice disorder. Mm. And that really changed my thinking quite a lot because none of these people had been scoped or examined yet. They've come in fresh set of eyes on this disorder and you're going the other way. You're thinking, oh, I can hear breathiness. I can hear roughness. It's intermittent. Ooh, what am I going to see? And I'm starting to think and imagine what I might see. Not always right. Sometimes you think you see very unexpected things. I love this because you're talking about filters mm. and I talk about this all the time, which is when you already have a diagnosis from the, the department, mm. then you put a filter on that says, this is the diagnosis I've been given and this is what I would expect to see and hear. Mm. And you're, this is going to sound really callous, but it's not. It's like you have a tick list. And you go, okay, that's there, that's that's there. Actually, that isn't there. That's quite interesting. Mm. And you've got that filter on, so you're processing the information with that filter in place. Whereas when you're in the two-week clinic, you don't have that filter. You are, it's, mm -hmm. I have no idea what it is. You're presenting me with you. So I'm listening. And mm. then my tick list is almost much bigger because I go, all I'm doing now is I'm noticing what you're telling me, I'm noticing what you're giving me, um, and I'm building my tick list, if you mm -hmm. like, rather than having it there. Mm. I love the, this whole thing about filters and diagnosis. Yes. And the other thing I was thinking is that the GP has referred. What's the benchmark for the, the GP referring someone with having a potential voice disorder? This might be really useful for members of the public to know. Yeah. So it varies. So ENT UK do have some clear guidance on their website, which might be interesting for people to look at. But a GP will make two types of referral into ENT. One of those will be a two-week wait, which is under the suspected head and neck cancer pathway. Now, that can be obviously quite terrifying for people who went to the doctor to talk about a voice change, not not thinking, you know, at any point that it might be cancer. Um, and it generally isn't, you know, much more people are referred through a two-week wait than not a very small percentage of those are going to have cancer. But it's the way the National Health Service works through the process of getting those people through quickly, because we don't know what's going on 
in the larynx until we have a look. So GPs will make the decision about a two-week wait based on various risk factors, um, both in someone's history, for example, whether they're a smoker, certain age, or the symptoms that the GP is observing or hearing when they're in, in the appointment. So those two-week wait patients I was seeing were people with suspected head and neck cancer. Um, now, it's a new and developing pathway through using the speech therapy profession to see these patients because we know only a tiny percentage of them do actually have malignant pathology in the larynx and speech therapy runs that clinic well because we can see them through the history, the diagnostic and immediate advice and information that helps and send them on their way often with with enough for, to reassure, tell them what's going on and then people can opt into speech therapy if they need it later. Really um, important role actually, isn't it? And obviously it's essential that we do rule out head and neck cancer straight away. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's going to be very interesting, and we'll look up that ENT UK. UK. We'll um, put that in the show notes. Gosh, how did you learn to specialise in voice? So I was very lucky where I started my first job. I that my manager was the voice lead, and we worked together very well. It was had a small voice caseload, and I quickly made it known that was an area I was really interested in. You have to develop and come up with your own ways for developing your 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 voice skills and your voice competencies when you're studying as a speech therapist you do you have ENT lectures you have voice disorder lectures you learn the basics and I was lucky enough to have a clinical placement in a voice department ENT department but not everyone does and there's a lot of postgraduate learning that goes on going to courses doing learning on the job alongside a clinical caseload and having supervision is vital but everyone's process through that is is slightly different it's interesting isn't it because joe public doesn't realize that there isn't a clear pathway for a speech and language therapist to start specializing in voice it's, it's a bit like being a singing teacher it's actually very much like being a singing <laughs> teacher where there is no clear pathway and you make your own mm. Mm. Wow, so much to talk about. This has been great so far. Oh, yeah, we're definitely having two two episodes for this. So we're going to stop there and we're going to bring Tor back next week. Tor, we'll see you then. See you then. This is a voice podcast with Dr. Gillian Kays and Jeremy Fisher.